This is the Fireground Action Photography Podcast, Episode 5, Fire Photographer Kenji Luster and Communications. Hello and welcome to Fireground Action Photography, the podcast produced by and for photographers specializing in emergency services action photography. I am your host, Craig Derling, and I'm joined in the studio today with, again, veteran fire photographer based in Southern California, Ross Benson. Welcome back, Ross. Hey, how are you tonight, Craig? Doing fantastic. We have a guest in the studio tonight. Wow. Uh, yeah, a mutual friend, somebody we've worked and, with and known for several, several years now. Is a veteran, also in his own right, Kenji Luster. Kenji, welcome. Well, thank you for you know inviting me here. I don't know about veteran, but uh, you're a veteran. Oh yeah, I've been doing this for a while. You have a little while. You have. How long have you been doing it? Fire photography. Yeah. Or actually, I, sh- I was told to say emergency service photography. Oh, no, you can say whatever you want. It takes yeah. longer to say, but I it kind of it's a more general term. I think maybe. ESP, I think e- is <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Somehow I right. knew you were going to say yes. that. Yes. Oh, that's another ESP. Yes. Um, let's see. Twenty-one years. Okay. Now did, um, you didn't start in as, as an emergency services photographer, did you? Or did you? No. What, what happened? I mean, I'm not counting those little, you know, little tiny garage fires and that third alarm uh, condominium under construction fire when I was in high school type of thing, but. Which was a pretty good fire. Uh, that was before I had a scanner. I just saw... Back then, any fire was a good fire. Well, yeah. I mean, that was back when we had fires. Um, That's true. <laughs> well, everybody else but, in the country won't know what we're referring to. No, but no, nothing no. nothing burns and, in California and, but brush anymore. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, uh, no, I started shooting... Well, I, I work in the film production. You know, 21 years in, uh, in motion picture and television production, and pretty much all that's been in the camera department. And I worked my way up from being a loader, camera assistant, and now I'm a camera operator. And uh, when I was first starting out, I spent a lot of time shooting for the local newspaper. In fact, a newspaper that uh, all three of us have had stuff run in, the, the Glendale News Press and what was uh, the Burbank paper called uh, back then? Burbank the, Daily Review or the Burbank Leader? The Leader. Yeah, it wasn't a daily then. The Burbank no. Chisel and Stone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Slate, the Daily yes. Slate. Well, I think Burbank and, was created in, what, uh, 1914? And how old are you? <laughs> oh. I'm getting there. Let's um, just say Ross was at the ribbon-cutting ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ross poured the uh, the cement for the foundation there. <laughs> But anyway, I used to shoot a lot, uh, a lot just, you know, stringer stuff, you know. And for those, I'm pretty sure everyone knows what stringer is, but uh, pretty much what a stringer in uh, the still photography world would be the uh, the freelance photographer that would be um, hired for uh, an ass- on-assignment basis to go out and shoot assignments. And, uh, you know, and that includes all the stuff that the uh, the staffers don't want to do. It's the 88-year-old, you know, grandmother who's also the aerobics instructor surprise birthday party, which I did shoot. And, and boy, we had a hootenanny hoedown, you know, square dance. And you're you know. still haunted by those images. Oh, it was pretty – yeah, especially in those leotards. Well, and the stringers um, too are really uh, the guys that a lot of papers and news organizations look toward – 
for to cut, be out there when their staffers aren't out there and pick up the uh, the spot news stuff. Well, that's pretty much it, and that's what I was doing. You know, I had a small little Radio Shack scanner, um, and I lived in the Glendale area at the time. I grew up in Glendale and uh, was shooting for the Glendale newspaper, just trying to make some extra bucks, and found that the thing that I enjoyed the most was shooting the spot news, you know, you know, the emergency service workers in action and not so much the PD because, you know, the police don't really like being photographed all the time. Not in a lot of cases. No. no. And uh, blame them. You know, I, you know and uh, I just started specializing in the, uh, you know, photographing the fire incidents, you know, whether it be a structure fire, a brush fire or a physical rescue or something Fire-related, you know, mm-hmm. saving the cat out of the tree kind of thing, which what, I've what never think, done. What do you think attracted you to that a little more? Well, going back, I mean, come on. We're all, you know, product what? of emergency. What? <laughs> the television show Emergency, huh. you know, and, uh, you know, growing up watching that show. But, um, you know, it's it's the – There's a there's an adrenaline rush to it, right? Well, yeah, getting into that. I was trying to think of a deeper psyche, you know delving into my id about that. Oh, my. But, this uh, show is only so long. Yeah, I know. But, um, no, it's it's definitely adrenaline rush. When you get that dispatch, hear the dispatch, and they got a working incident, and you're in your car without lights or sirens, trying to battle the traffic to get there, whatever it is, and either you see that, you know, smoke showing, header or loom oh, up. The loom up. Yeah, Ooh. the headers, the L.A. County guys would say, you know. You're 10 miles out and you got a header showing, you know, and that's great. You know, then you get there and things out. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, oh, yeah. You know, nine times out of 10, especially at the size of Los Angeles, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, even in, I live in the city of Pasadena and shoot for the uh, Pasadena fire department. I'm one of their uh, volunteer photographers and just trying to get across town. Yeah. Well, in LA, you can be a mile from something and it can take you half an hour to get oh, there. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. not even always a distance issue, but... Uh, no, it's a traffic logistics yeah. issue. Uh, you know, it's I'm pretty sure, you know, the guys listening in uh, in Chicago, Boston, or New York can completely identify yeah. with trying to get from, you know, from the Chicago loop up to, you know, the north side. I mean, it's just... Insane. Now, who do you provide your images to? You, you shoot now. You cover all kinds of stuff. You said you are, are volunteer with uh, Pasadena Fire Department, and I th- believe LA County Fire Department as well. Yes, I'm also a volunteer photographer with the LA County Fire Department. Good, as am I. Now, who do you typically? Who are you shooting for? Do you shoot for yourself? Do you shoot for these departments for training purposes? Do you sell your images? What's your outlet? Um, because of my work in film production, it's just not really. Um, I just don't have the time to really peddle the photos to sell anymore. I mean, way back when, when I had time to go drop them off at the newspapers, and that was back in the film days, mm-hmm. you know, where you drop off the negatives or, you know, try to show the stuff or process it and try to convince the editor to go with your photo. Um, just don't have the time to do that. Um, trying to get it to magazines. I mean, I have a kid. I have a seven-month-old at home. Just trying to, you know, email the stuff to Firehouse Magazine can be, you know, a big chore. So pretty much with me, and this is just me, I just really shoot for either L.A. County or Pasadena. 
and uh, my photos get used at both departments for training, a lot for um, uh, public relations, for public education, and for um, uh, just internal history. Right. And right. Uh, that's one thing that a lot of these departments are starting to look at now, uh, especially with uh, that's how you know both you, you and I, and I'm pointing at Craig right now, got started with Pasadena Fire Department was they were trying to put together a yearbook slash history book, which they did. But they found that they didn't have any photos from about 1980 to, at that time, 1998. And the reason why is they let go the uh, department photographer. They actually had a department photographer. And he uh, retired. They didn't have the budget to uh, replace him. And the next thing you know, you know, all those years, 18 years went by of no photos. No history. Yeah, and when you're trying to put together a history book of your department and you don't have almost 20 years, two decades. It's, it's a lot of writing. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a lot of these guys were getting ready to retire also. And, you know, they had some, you know, candid shots. But, you know, so um, it really helps to record, document a lot of these departments. And, and eventually their solution to that dilemma when they came to us was to start a volunteer photographer program. You know, hand pick yes. a handful of photographers you can trust that have that have established themselves, and and uh, they've had pretty good success with that. If we do say or so, say so ourselves, right? I, I believe so. They're they're very happy with everything we've done, and uh, we do it. We're all volunteers. We do not get paid to you know go out and shoot these incidents. Right. There is certain there is some safety equipment that's issued to us in the department because it is safety equipment, breast jackets. Um, you know, they're trying to get us helmets and, and brush pants, boots, things like that, because they want a, us to be as safe as we can on the scene. But this is something that any photographer anywhere in the country could maybe approach their local fire department with this idea of having a volunteer photographer. And it, one, it helps the department and the city because it gets us, them those images for historical purposes, for training and, and PR purposes. But it also gets that photographer maybe a little more access than they would have uh, otherwise. Yeah, and this isn't a, a unique situation for Pasadena or for L.A. County Fire Department. You know, Burbank has a volunteer photographer, Ross Benson. I wouldn't even call him a volunteer photographer. He is photo one. He's photo one. Always has been photo yeah. one. You oh know, for, you know, first time I met him, you had photo one on the top of your truck, you know. and it did. You know, and um, the Culver City Fire Department has Brian Hamer who is uh, their department photographer, and he's been issued safety equipment, including a radio. And that, that might be something that a lot of photographers don't even think of. You know, they, they, they try and they battle access issues to incidents constantly and think, how can I get better access? And we get emails here at the show about, geez, how do you get access? Because some of the stories you're telling and some of the situations you're talking about, we wouldn't even be able to get anywhere near where we live. And so this might be a viable option that somebody could... Uh, like I said, approach their department with because I can't imagine it's unique to us, but maybe it is. Well, um, let me pipe in here that I find that almost every fire department has to go to their city council or their town group or whatever for funds. And there's always a question of what you do out there. Those councilmen and uh, city leaders aren't out at scenes of incidents and to um, remember to shoot and take a to your uh, fire department for that. Yep. That's 
Excellent. Something to consider out there if you're, uh, you've been wondering about how to get better access. But let's get back to Kenji. Um, we, you know, we've been promising for a couple of shows now that we'll get a Nikon guy in here, right, Ross? That's true. We're both Canon guys, and we're talking about kind of techniques and shooting modes and, and controls on cameras, and we really don't know that much about Nikon and how different Nikon is. Now, you are a Nikon guy. First, start with the required question. Why Nikon over Canon for you? Once you go black, you never go back. No. Uh, I'm I referring wasn't wanting to, the, to have uh, to edit this show. It's <laughs> referring to the black lenses. Now, um, original, originally I started out with Minolta, and that's going back to junior high school. You know, uh, and Nikon at that time, and this is, you know, the 80s, you know, was the camera, the photojournalist camera to have. And I know that Ross was a Nikon shooter for years. And... They made a, a fantastic product. And when I had the funds to go Nikon, and this is back in the, the late 80s, I did. You know, starting out with a, a used F3, then buying a, an F4 and and progressing up to uh, an F5 eventually. And uh, buying a, an FM2 along the way just to have as a backup body. Um, at that time... Nikon was king. This is, you know, right when autofocus was just coming on the scene and pretty much Canon just blew Nikon out of the water. Um, I stuck with Nikon because I just like the ergonomics and really the way it worked, the way the, the dials and everything, it just seemed natural to me because I'd been shooting Nikon for so long. Uh, when digital came on the scene with the first Nikon D1, you know, Nikon was back on top for about a day or so. You know, it was it was a heck of a lot cheaper than what Kodak was doing. I forget the model number of the, you know, of the uh, Kodak. I don't know if everyone remembers this. Uh, got a bunch of um, Nikon bodies. I believe it was like the N90s, and made them into digital cameras, which weighed about thirty pounds. And I couldn't even tell you what kind of uh, megapixel count it was, but um, they also cost like anywhere 15. from one to three. Yeah, so yeah, and it was just <laughs> it was a novelty, and they and Associated Press bought a bunch of them. A lot of papers bought them. You could probably find them on eBay for about a hundred bucks now, because you know at the time that was you know cutting edge technology, and and uh, everyone listening to this knows that you know once you buy anything, it's it's outdated as soon as you open the box. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I, I stuck with Nikon. Mainly because of the history I had with it and and the fact that all my lenses worked on all the bodies. And that was a huge selling point for them because Canon wasn't doing that. No. And, you know, Canon, Minolta, Pentax, every camera manufacturer changed their lens mounts when they went to autofocus. Nikon stayed true to their uh, their loyal customers, which turned out to be not so loyal, but we'll get more into that later. Uh, with their same F mount, so you could put a, an old Nikkor fifty, you know, one point two that was made in nineteen fifty two on an F five. You know, you locked a lot of uh, exposure metering capabilities and a lot of uh, autofocus, you know, deals. But the fact that you could use all your old glass on this, you know, modern day camera was great. The problem was was digital. Well, both autofocus and digital, uh, Canon really made great strides in that, and Nikon fell behind. You know, Nikon to me is 
the camera company run by a bunch of engineers. Canon is a multinational conglomerate, you know, run by a lot of uh, really smart business people. And Canon makes a lot of different things. And they do a very good job. And But their main job is to sell you stuff. So they're coming out with a new model every three months. And they do a very good job with it. Pretty much all of my friends shoot Canon. And I'm always the odd duck out. But um, I've been very happy with the last generation or current generation of Nikon digital cameras. You know, my first Nikon digital was a D100, which I shot with for, I don't know, a few months and just got completely um, um, frustrated with this prosumer or this consumer camera. I've been so used to shooting with F5s. So I bought a couple of D2Hs and People remember that was their high-speed 4.2-megapixel camera, which was great. Um, but once the D200 came out, their prosumer answer to, I believe it was the uh, the D40 or D20 or the 40D or 20D mm-hmm. Canon, I, I, you know, Nikon really, you know, hit it. They really nailed it with that camera. Exposure, um, the flash capabilities you know being able to do program fill flash and you know at a night fire you know is great the flash works you know phenomenally on the d200 i've since um, bought a d300 and retired both d2h's i love the d2h because it'll do eight frames a second but boy um the d300 is just a fantastic camera and i've been very happy with it now you mentioned uh, glass, and it's a lot of people. I think the reason a lot of people do stick with Canon or stick with Nikon or stick with their manufacturer of choices because they've got at this point a collection of lenses that they've got quite a money, a lot of money invested in, and they don't want to have to unload that just to go out and buy a whole new set of lenses for a new body. And I think that's an important point. But you mentioned something that interests me, which is something we talk about. You said ergonomics. You like the ergonomics, the controls, the layout of it was very natural to you, and that's something Ross and I talk about a lot: is knowing your camera. Being familiar with the controls, the options, what it can do. Um, now, do you think that the kind of a muscle memory is real important when you go from one body to the next? Is the controls being similar to each other? They're easy to find. Um, you know, knowing your camera, you 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 know where all the buttons are and all that. That's important to you. Well, yeah. I mean, coming from a you know motion picture camera background, being an assistant, you know, knowing where all the little buttons are so you can fumble around when it's dark. You know, and doing all that kind of thing. It's the same thing while shooting something at night and it's pitch black. And, yeah, I know how to put that lens on, you know, when it's completely, you know, dark. You know, I know, you know, how to change the ASA settings. And and that was the big problem between when I was shooting with a D2H and a D200. I ended up shooting more with the D200, you know, because it was, you know, a bigger and nicer sensor. But also, I like the way the things were laid out. But then there's a lot of things on the D2H I liked how they're laid out. But a lot of the basic stuff between the two cameras were the same. And, uh, you know, where the uh, uh, automatic explo- exposure lock and the auto fo- – yeah, that's a, I think it's a scotch <laughs> I've been drinking. And the um, the autofocus lock and on the uh, the shutter release, you know, just being – just knowing, you know, where the side grip and that you have the thumb wheel and the index finger wheel, you know, on the uh, the battery grip. And like you said, you've got to know where those controls are in the dark too. Yeah. 
like at fires, and, and we've talked about, you know, you, it can be at night, the fire, and you're in the dark, or it could be in the middle of the day at a brush fire, but it's as dark as night because of the smoke. Uh, how are you finding that the Nikons are, are behaving, the newer Nikons are behaving in low light compared to the Canons now? They've, have they jumped ahead with the low light uh, capability and the, 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 uh, the lower, lower uh, level of noise that you're finding in the exposures? Well, you know, not being a uh, Canon shooter, I can't really, you know, go into too much detail about what a Canon does. I can only tell you what my experience is with with uh, the cam- Nikon cameras I've been using, and I've been very pleased on the uh, the uh, the noise and you know the noise level or you know the the grain or gain, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Are you finding you can go up to higher ISOs um, yeah. at night and 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 stay with available light rather rather than having to go to a strobe and and the uh, the quality of that image is 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 still acceptable? Yeah, um, I've been very happy with the noise level at higher ISAs, though. You know, personally, I don't really shoot that much available light, um, you know, at night because nine times out of ten, it's, you know, it's a car accident or a fire and I'm just trying to get the image. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if if it's a night fire, then, yeah, I'm going for a, a silhouette, you know, and, of course, it doesn't take much to get a silhouette when you have a fully involved anything, in, you know, behind the subject. But uh, overall, the noise, you know, overall with the images have been uh, fantastic with the Nikon. And um, I know that a lot of my friends that shot Canon or shoot Canon were having a lot of issues with um, a couple generations ago flash units shooting Mm -hmm. fires at night. And we're just having a, a bear of a time where even with my D2H, I was able to get some very good results shooting, um, manual or even program mode using matrix metering full ttl flash but um i try to look at flash photography on a fire is more of a fill flash photography because you have such a bright image you have scotch light on the turnout so you got scotch light all over these rigs plus strobes or uh or leds or what or the old type halogen you know light bars going and it just you know wreaks havoc with any meter on any camera. Are, are you finding you, you can get away with the uh, TTL and all that on the Nikon, or are you going all manual for that? Because uh-huh. it's a it's a real dynamic situation, and there's no, you know, you're either overexposed or underexposed on something. And how how do you get that happy medium? How do you get that exposure? Well, on film, I just you know get away with a lot, just but <laughs> wide open. Yeah. yeah, you know, even you know, my old rule of thumb shooting film was you know. Uh, 400 ASA, 60th or 30th is second at a 5.6, you know, with a good fire and fill flash, you know, and, um, you know, the 5.6 or, or even a 4, and that gave you enough detail in the shadow areas where you could, you know, pick up some ambient light without, you know, killing it with the flash. And, um, and with manual focus way back is, if, you know, if you were at a higher f-stop you know a four or five six you didn't have to be as spot on with that focus point you can get away get it was a little more forgiving yeah um which which is funny because of the smaller sensor size you actually have more depth of field now but that's some egghead stuff uh oh we like egghead yeah but uh i I can get my depth of field calculator out that i use for film work and we used to use for film work there you go see you should be a master at doing it all on manual because you have to do it all on manual in, in your film work 
Well, but at least you have a, a should have a great understanding about the importance of exposure and f stops versus. I, I I hope I do. I mean, I'm a camera operator now. Well, you're still working. Well, yeah, I still get hired or fired or one of the two. As long as you don't get fired more than you get hired. <laughs> or, yeah, that's how. Yeah, the ratio still is pretty yeah. good. You know, the check's still clear. So, but um, at least you're around long enough to get a check. That's yeah. Cool. You you, know. you had mentioned silhouettes a few minutes ago. What? Mm-hmm. And, and people ask a lot um, if fire photographers have a specialty. Do you, do you find you have a specialty or at least a preferred um, um, shot you like to get? Do you like silhouettes versus action stuff? Do you like day stuff versus night or apparatus uh, photography? What, what, do you, what do you dig? Well, not so big on the apparatus photography, but I do photograph apparatus because I'm also a patch collector. Um, I like collecting fire department patches. Um, mainly from California, but when I go to different departments, you know, just to, since I'm there and I'll try to take a picture of their yeah. rig. And if some departments have more unique paint, yeah. paint schemes and things like you know, that. You, that you go up to Napa city and they have that one truck that's just, you know, an American flag and it has every, you know, the 343, you know, New York guys mm-hmm. that were killed in nine 11. It has their name on that rig. And wow. it, it's, you know, and all hand painted, and it's it's a great rig, you know, to shoot. And there is a lot of um, thinking if you want to do an apparatus the right way. You got to think about it. You got to think, okay, is it backlit, frontlit? You know, do you use a polarizer, this, that, the other thing? And you can really get into it, and it's much like photographing a car because that's what you're doing. It's just a big car, mm-hmm. and uh, just knowing, you know, where to put the rigs and and being able to uh, strike up a, a, a relationship with uh, the engineer, as we call him out here, chauffeur, back east, or whoever the the driver, yeah, whoever the the boot who gets stuck, you know, yeah, you know, why, hey, you know, so and so, you know, go drive the rig out for the guy in the apron and make him happy, but uh, you know, just trying to um, you know communicate and uh, get the shot you want, but. But going back, no, I'm not an apparatus guy, whereas a lot of my friends, Robert Navarro, Larry Cummings, they're huge apparatus guys. You know, Keith Colmes, a huge Every apparatus. time a new agency gets a new piece of – or an agency gets a new piece of apparatus, a new rig. I mean, they're out there. Well, yeah, Larry Cummings and Robert Navarro are always – I mean, you know, Robert, you know, will go all over the state and into Nevada and Arizona to go shoot apparatus. And he's really good at that. And, you know, maybe we could con him in uh, – yeah, well, that's that's a whole show. genre yeah. of fire oh, yeah. photography. Oh, and yeah. these guys that, that really specialize in that make beautiful images. Yeah. Now I'm going to hold up the sign that says uh, stay on topic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you hold it up to yourself. Yeah. You're the one that's talking. I know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll just read hey, it. Yeah. Hey, one, the- one big thing we wanted to uh, to cover while you were here before we – you know, we, we, the, the clock is moving here. Um, and you have a, a pretty good background in the communications, the notification and that's a big part of this fire photography, this emergency services photography is one finding out about the incident that it's going on, where it's going on, getting that information, uh, but also communicating with your fellow photographers in the area who might be responding, might have a, more information, different information, might have a the, a better way in or um, talk about access issues or safety issues. Um, it's a big topic we want to talk about was notification systems, um, and there are, there are all kinds of them out there. I mean, the ultimate purpose of a notification system for us. Our purpose is, is quick and timely notification of dispatched uh, and ongoing incidents, right? 
Well, um, working incidents, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, they take all forms. I mean, there are paging systems out there. Um, pagers are kind of going by the wayside now. There are still people that have them. There are still people that use two-way pagers. I know Ross is looking for the three that are on his belt right now. <laughs> um, you know, and that was always a real good way of doing it. Um, but now that technology has come around, we're, we're seeing a lot of online Internet-based systems like Yahoo Groups. You can put notification groups together and opt to get those notifications on your phone or via text message or on by email and all that. Um, do you know of any that are that are out there? I mean, Yahoo Groups. I know there are a couple out here uh, in Southern yeah. California. You know, there's there are a ton of them. You know, all across the United States, and uh, and some of them do a great job. Some of them do an okay job. Some of them just get created and never have enough uh, uh, interest from the users to keep it going. And that's right because it it, it counts it, on the users to put well, that information in. That's that's the thing. I mean, there is a system here. Um, and this was several, you know, got started several years ago that, uh, relied on, uh, on dispatchers, mm-hmm. you know, the users, the end users couldn't input the, uh, the incidents themselves into the system. It had to go through a, a, a dispatcher and to get around that, they also had an 800 number where, you know, the dispatchers would pick up these, you know, um, messages that the end users would, uh, would, um, Put out over the eight hundred, you know, the eight hundred number, but you know, when you have a dispatcher-based system, well, dispatchers have to eat, sleep, right? But that and, all takes time too, and it, yeah, and you know, and it that system kind of went by the wayside because people just, you know, couldn't devote, you know, hundred percent of their time for basically the price of subscribing to the system um, to become dispatchers. Then you have these other systems where. You know, you still have a dispatcher there, but they have more of them, and they're more internet-based, so the guys don't have those old alpha terminals. And it could go either to an email address or a text page or, um, you know, to your cell phone. And that's been a very popular system. It's, all, you know, the one that uh, I subscribe to, you know, is is nationwide. Then there's several yeah. local systems. Well, we can mention it. Uh, probably IPN. Yeah, right? IPN. Internet, Internet yeah. incident paging. Incident network. paging network, and that's and we'll, uh, and we'll put the the website for that in the show notes, so you don't have to worry about a link right now. What you find, Kenji, now uh, technology is really changing so much, not only camera wise but notification wise, uh, with the cell phone that you get a full dispatch from a dispatch center versus IPN or whatever. Well, you know, I know that the three of us are very fortunate. And that, you know, we get dispatches direct from Verdugo Dispatch because we are authorized, you know. For those out there who don't know what Verdugo Dispatch is. uh, Verdugo Dispatch is a uh, consolidated dispatch center that dispatches for the cities of Burbank, Glendale, Pasadena, San Marino, South Pasadena, Arcadia, Monrovia, Arcadia. Oh, you said that already. No, Alhambra. Sorry, it's those. I was hoping you could do it all in one breath I know. by now. Um, <laughs> San Gabriel, Sierra Madre. To, I can give you a warning, and you can get our good run up going and get yeah. the whole thing out. I think there's <laughs> seven cities now. No, there are more than that. I oh. think there are eleven. Holy Did they yeah. change this week? Did they add more to it this week? There are more than seven. But I like the consolidated dispatch for a couple of reasons. One is is we get dispatches directly from their dispatch unit through their computer system. Um, but you, it's fewer departments you have to listen to on the radio. Well, you can listen fewer to one frequencies, channel. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you listen to something like down in San Diego, they have uh, Rancho, which 
dispatches for several departments and the same with uh, uh, I, I guess they changed their name uh, maybe it's not Rancho maybe it's North uh, uh, North um, something yeah something. I don't know since I don't live there I don't really but then you you look at Orange County MetroNet which pretty much dispatches for everybody in Orange County that's not Orange County Fire except for you know the cities of Costa Mesa Santa Ana and uh, Brea um, but it makes it easier when yeah. they, you know, you, you only have to monitor one right. channel or frequency or talk group on, on a system and get all the dispatches for that area. And I remember, I remember living, living back East when I had to have, you know, at the time you wanted the 200 channel scanner, oh, yeah. you know, which was the biggest one out there, but you had to have like three of them because you had to have one for VHF, one for UHF, and you had to monitor Every single department, every single city out there, because they all had their own fire departments. They all had different frequencies, uh, and there were very few mutual aid frequencies. Where out here in in Southern California, you know, you might have the thousand channel scanner now for all the tax and and just you know all the sheriff's department stuff, just so you have it in case you need to hear something specific. Um, but as far as dispatch frequencies, you don't have to listen to a whole lot out here to hear all the uh, all the dispatches. No, and I remember in the days uh, before a lot of – originally Verdugo was just Glendale, Burbank, and Pasadena. And, um, you know, that was great because I lived in Glendale. So that's all I really was interested in. But you would also have, you know, South Pasadena and San Marino and uh, a couple other departments were all in the same frequency. They didn't have the same dispatch center, but they shared the same frequency. Hmm. Which is kind of strange, but you know, like for South Pass or uh, or uh, San Gabriel, they had a fireman, you know, standing there at night monitoring the phone. So when you know nine one one would pick up, it'd go to the fire department, and then uh, the firefighter would have to you know dispatch the call. Right. But um, and if San Marino was having an incident, also, then you get two dispatches at the same time. Yeah, it got really confusing. Oy. Yeah, Oy. but anyway, there's as far you know, Ross brought up technology coming in and all that, mm-hmm. and there's there's a new notification tool out there that I've recently discovered. I've recently uh, gotten on Twitter, and I've talked about it. You know, this show is on Twitter at Fire Photos. It's free to uh, to sign up for Twitter. You can get your own account, and you click on these different people to follow. And there's millions of people on it now. But something that I've recently discovered that's on there is fire departments. There are a lot of fire departments that are putting out dispatches. Via Twitter, and you can get these via, via on your phone by text message. You can get them by email. You can choose in your own account how you want to be notified. And I'm saying, I mean, when I say there are departments on here, I mean LA City Fire Department, uh, Cal Fire. There are departments in Colorado, Houston, Texas is on there. Memphis, Tennessee, Scottsdale, Arizona. I mean, there are some big departments out there that are putting dispatches and updates out on Twitter. So on my phone, I will get pages during the day from the PIO, the on-duty PIO of LA City Fire, putting out dispatches of incidents and also putting out pretty reliable and 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 timely updates and size-ups of incidents. So it's not like some paging systems where you, where you just get the dispatch and then you're on your own to find out what happens after that. But he's in there putting out updates. And I think that's hugely beneficial to photographers. I think one of the, uh, Brian Humphreys is uh, a PIO, a public information officer with LA City Fire, and he's a real, uh, com- I would say, computer geek and so forth. And uh, I guess we won't have him on the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, Brian would admit that. And he uh, 
he believes that uh, the public and uh, everybody out there should know what LA City's doing, and he uh, and all three PIOs really keep up to date with their Twitter account, and uh, he talks back and forth uh, on Twitter, and uh, has promoted it quite a bit. Yeah, I've noticed that in the in the pages I've gotten, as I think, oh, this will never last, or this is probably ten, fifteen, an hour old, or it's only incidents that they feel are important, but they're putting stuff out all the time. Well, I just got out updates. a couple it's, minutes ago that said still en route. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very timely. I'm finding it to be as reliable as Twitter can be, but very reliable as far as incident paging because a lot of the other Internet-based systems are are reliant on the however fast that Internet is going to react to it. And sometimes um, there can be quite a delay in between the time the dispatch gets put out, it gets put into the computer, and you get it on your phone or by email um, where these Twitter uh, notifications are almost instant. It's great. Yeah. When Keith Colum... Uh, photographer, now retired uh, from Santa Barbara County. He was the PIO for quite a while there before he retired. And he was really good about, you know, you know, through his BlackBerry, you know, sending pages out to the local media. And uh, you just don't get that from very many PIOs. No, there was Brian Jordan with LA he County was, Fire. But, yeah, he was really but, good uh, at these that. These guys we're mentioning are also photographers. And yes. They, and they knew the benefit of one, being a photographer and, and how appreciative a photographer would be to get this information, but two, what a benefit it is for the department to have photographers know about incidents as they go out. Well, well that's a big problem with, um, it doesn't matter where you are, is they always, you know, the firefighters and especially, you know, some of the battalion chiefs or the people running the the incident, you know, why are you here? You know, and I get that even today, you know, why do you do this? That's what I asked when you walk in the room today. You know, pretty much. Um, why are you here? Why, you know, it's free scotch was, uh, <laughs> I think, the, uh, but. Um, it's a family show. Yes, yes. Family show. I had to ply you with, never mind, <laughs> never mind. The, um, and there is no really, you know, definite answer, but we generally want to be there. We're, we're all drawn to it for one reason or another, you know, to cover the incident either for, your job as a photographer for a newspaper or a, you know a TV station, or just because you really want to be there and document what's going on. Right. Um, but like I said, the department benefits as well because oh yeah. you know the more photographers they have, not necessarily the more photographers, but if they have photographers there on scene, the department is going to get better photographs out there in the public, out there in the media, and all that. And it so it, it's a mutually. Uh, you know, beneficial uh, relationship. And, you know, maybe one of the biggest tools, this is why I saved this till the end, um, and it might put us over our allotted time today, but we'll keep talking as long as it's uh, it's relevant, is radio systems. Radio systems are a huge, huge method of notification, but not only notification of incidents, but for updates, for uh, photographers communicating while en route to something and while on scene at something. And, and I think that's huge in Southern California, and we're always talking about this, is how many brush fires and wildland fires we have. You know, how many of us have had our bacon saved out there because we were able to get on a radio and talk to a fellow photographer at a scene when maybe we're getting somewhere we shouldn't be? There's, you know, there's a, we're in a draw, we're in a bad spot, and they're able to tell us we're in a bad spot. And, we're, you know, I mean, it's such a hazardous scene to be able to communicate with other photographers out there um, is, is huge. And, uh, you know, there are conventional systems out there. Um, and with as technology changes, you know, um, we've all been involved in conventional systems and, and then trunking systems and digital systems. And, and soon we'll all be on digital trunked encrypted systems and technology is rolling along there as well as 
the actual coverage of these systems. Um, I know back east where I'm from, uh, MRS, Metro Radio System, is a huge system back in New England with coverage over most of New England. Um, and there are several uh, smaller uh, privately owned organizations and groups that are kind of, some are invitation only, some you can just automatically get on because you're on MRS. But it afforded you a great opportunity to get uh, uh, notified of incidents. And MRS, uh, I believe, still and always has had 24-hour coverage with dispatchers. And that's huge. That's something you're not really going to see with a, a, you know uh, with uh, other radio groups out there is to have somebody at the helm to monitor and put stuff out uh, 24 hours a day. Um, and, you know, we have uh, groups out here. California Fire Photographers Association used to manage uh, a system of repeaters for notification. Um, that has since uh, been uh, released and a, a group started up, uh, Emergency Photographers Network, um, has a system, a conventional system in Southern California. And, Kenji, you're you're involved in, uh, the, as am I, in the emergency radio system. Yes. Which is has taken diff- different forms uh, um over the past uh, several years, as technology has has grown and improved, tell us about that. Well, our our biggest problem with <laughs> we call it the ERS, and that doesn't mean Robert or Edward Robert Sherman, who's also one of our members. Um, now, the emergency radio system uh, started because we wanted something much similar to the MRS, the Metro Radio System in Boston. We wanted large coverage, and the best way we could do that at the time, this was several years ago, was through an 800 megahertz trunked LTR system, which had great coverage. We could talk everywhere, but it wasn't simulcast or linked. So there were standalone repeaters. So you'd have to use a repeater on a mountain site in Orange County, and that'd give you great coverage into the Inland Empire and Orange County and down into uh, San Diego County and Riverside. But you couldn't hear it worth a darn up here in uh, Burbank. Um, then Nextel bought out all the 800 megahertz frequencies, and we went to a LTR UHF system, which provided even greater coverage, but yet again wasn't simulcast and wasn't linked in any way. And now, what, these, now LTR and all that you're talking about trunked radio systems, yes. and and in and, other parts of the country, may, they may never never have heard of that, or not may may not be aware that that's available. Real quickly, uh, explain that that kind of a system to us. Well, with uh, conventional repeaters uh, or a repeater in general, you broadcast on one frequency, it goes up to a mountaintop or a radio tower, and rebroadcast it on a different frequency, and with that, you get extended coverage. On a trunk system, you're doing the same thing, but instead of just one frequency or two frequencies, uh, you have up to 20 frequencies or even more. And what happens is that there's a computer that's controlling uh, the use of these frequencies. It's like so a, pool, a pool of frequencies. It's, it's a pool of frequencies. So you have 20 frequencies, and then – Traditionally, you'd only be able to have 20 conversations or 20 departments or tactical frequencies, you know, allotted to those, you know, channels. But with the trunk system, it's a virtual radio system. And this is where it gets kind of uh, hard to explain. I'll do do my best. But uh, basically, it will um, – the computer controls – uh, where the user were to go. It will assign the first available channel. And the conversation will go to that channel. 
If you're not broadcasting for a few moments and another user, you know, with with a plumbing company or dog grooming company comes up, it may take that channel. And but uh, you're never if it's a shared like the conventional shared channels, you drop your PL tone, you're going to hear everybody yeah. else on the groomers, the plumbers. Yeah, on a trunk system, you won't hear that. You'll never hear that. And what what happens is, um, it'll just uh, assign you whatever available channel there is. So it's the basic form of trunking. It's called Logic Trunk Radios. LTR. LTR. You know, and that's what most business systems are based on. And that, but as far as an end user, you'd never know no, what the system is doing. You're still talking on channel one. You're talking on channel yeah. two. It's the computer at the head end that's deciding what to do the rest of the time. So it's no more complicated uh, on the radio itself. But no. um, do you think the genesis of that was? Is it uh, because there are fewer and fewer or more crowded frequency spectrum, or um, do you think that came about because it was a better way, a more efficient way of, uh, of well, working? Well, you know, you know, with the radio providers, you know, that they want to get as many subscribers, much like a cell phone company, using their system. And if you only have two frequencies or twenty frequencies, and you're only able to put so many, you know, subscribers on those frequencies, well, if you go trunk. You could double it, triple it, quadruple it. You can have a thousand subscribers, you know, with different um, businesses using the spectrum. And it's just more efficient way and profitable way for uh, for them to use it. And many fire departments and public safety organizations are going to a higher level of that type of trunking, or have been for years. You know, whether it be the Motorola. You know, type two or type one systems, or the G. Uh, well, I guess it's not GE anymore. The the Maycom EDAC systems. Um, but I'm pretty sure everyone's pretty familiar with trunking because I know it's being used in you know a lot of cities. I think um, you know for Los Angeles, we have the least amount of trunking being used for public safety, except uh, within the last few years with ISIS, which is the uh, originally was the Glendale City system. Um, but it's now being used by Verdugo Dispatch, by Burbank, by uh, Pomona, Culver City, Montebello, and uh, soon to be Pasadena. You know, they're on a digital trunk system right now, and uh, it's just the way it's going. You know, conventional yeah. systems are probably going to be disappearing pretty quick, especially if you're, a, you know, trying to set up your own um, two-way notification system using a radio. Because there are photographers out there, I'm sure, that are trying to figure out a way to do this and are just starting out and uh, and might be looking for maybe – they think conventional is a simpler way of doing it just because the conversation about LTR yeah. is a little more complicated. Um, but it is available to them out there in most, most parts of the country probably, right? Well, pretty much everywhere. I mean trying to find a conventional frequency to uh, to get space on to use here in Los Angeles is getting really difficult. Because all the uh, systems are being converted over to trunk. Now, there are a lot of systems out there that are pro they probably consider their information proprietary, their notification, their dispatches. They don't want a lot of the people outside their group hearing about it. Do you think uh, LTR is a step uh, toward the that uh, that end of uh, less fewer people being able to hear it? Even though most scanners now will do digit uh, will do trunking. Yeah. Well, you know, it's th there are two things. If you're starting up your own system, there there are a couple of things you got to think about. And that is, do you want people to be able to break into your system, you know, or do you want, you know, everyone to be able to hear your system, you know, and, and those are, you know, two different things. On LTR, 
yeah, anyone can hear LTR. There are some really smart people out there that can, you know, figure out, you know, where you're, you know, if you're on an LTR system, they'll figure out where you are because the encryption, there is no encryption on LTR. On a conventional system, that being, you know, one step above uh, having two, um, you know, pineapple cans, you know, and a piece of string, you know, strung together. Which we've done in a pinch. You yes. Know, after an earthquake, and it actually we go works to the old, very uh, well, yeah. The, the old, yeah. We um, go but there is, like you said, it's uh, you can still, with scanners and things out there, listen to trunk systems. But yeah. talking on a trunk system is different. And that might be a bigger issue with some groups mm-hmm. is having unauthorized uh, transmissions on well, their system. that's the thing. And that's a problem we had with the old CFPA system is that, you know, we never – well, most of us, you know, me particularly – Never really cared about who listened to us. But there are a lot of jokers out there that did, you know, bootleg onto our system and would interrupt our um, our conversations. Uh, Whether they be disgruntled former members or, or, or competitors or, out there. Or just, you know, just some knuckleheads. Cause you never know, you know, what reason people, you know, have for doing that. Now, with a trunk system, because there is a connection to a head end and a computer, so to speak, you may, depending on the equipment out there, have the ability to to disable a radio remotely, right? Does well, that yeah. come with a trunk system? Yeah, on, on LTR systems, there's a very basic way of doing it. And LTR is the 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 lowest, or I shouldn't say lowest, but the most basic trunking, type of trunking there is. And that's what's the most commonly available type of trunking, you know, for business users especially since Nextel, you know, bought out a lot of the uh, 800 megahertz systems. But you have that ability to disable a radio, whether you, it be a non, uh, you know, an unauthorized transmission, yeah. somebody that's hacking your system, or even maybe a non-paying member in some in some cases. Or out if there. you have a guy just, you know, a member, you know, an authorized member who just isn't playing by the rules and is getting a little, and we all, you know, have dealt with those people, you know, the personalities just get a little big sometimes. But, um, yeah, there's always the ability to turn a radio off on a trunk system or turn all the radios off well, if and, you design that into the uh, – Into the programming. Yeah. And and the reason I bring that up is because with a conventional system, we've all found uh, being involved in organizations in the past with a conventional system is if you let a member go, if there's uh, a reason you, 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 know, you let a member go and they're no longer uh, uh, authorized to be on the system but they have a chip on their shoulder, they're going to start stepping on everybody and putting out bad information – you had no teeth. There was nothing you could do to keep that person from talking on the radio aside from sending letters to them, having your vendor send letters, nasty letters, and trying to intimidate them out of talking on the radio. There was really nothing beyond that other than changing your frequencies, which they're ultimately going to find shortly anyway. Well, yeah, and, you know, any of you guys that have ham radio licenses, you know, have experienced that on your ham repeaters, you know, which are most ham repeaters are open systems and You'll get some joker on there and just trying to get them off. You know, you can only give them the cold shoulder for so long or, you know, there's really no recourse. And trying to deal – have the FCC step in, well, they got a lot of other things to deal with like uh, trying to get digital television, you know, happening. What? (laughs) Yeah. Everybody out there with rabbit ears getting their converter boxes Oh, yeah. You know, you get a coupon I saw a commercial for, you know, you yeah. get a coupon. And, and you depend on your members. You tell everybody, don't acknowledge this person on the radio. Don't tell them to shut mm-hmm. up. Don't tell them anything because if you acknowledge them at all, that'll just feed them. We've all heard that. But, you know, some people, their patience runs out and they want to start saying something to that person on the radio. And all it does is fire it back up again. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we had those problems on the conventional systems we've all been on. And 
there are ways around that. You can go with a Nextel or a, a push-to-talk system based on one of the uh, cellular providers. But it gets really expensive and very limited in the amount of uh, members you could put on these uh, group calls, so to speak. And it's just not as efficient as having a just a good, plain, old-fashioned two-way radio. Right, that so has radio a radio you can pick up and talk on. Yeah, that but, d- has a conventional channel on it or and to get that And to get that remote disabled, you have, like you said, you have to program the radio that way. So there's mm-hmm. a value to the organization or the association itself or having one central point one person that's responsible for programming radios and what might not be a, a popular thing is to lock the radio. So now the user can no longer at least get to the trunking stuff. They may be able to get the conventional, but there has to be some security within the radio so they can't get to that and change that feature, right? Yeah, and, and that's a huge issue with conventional because there's no, there's no way to really you – know, it's a conventional frequency. And it, it's trying to keep a lid on that. You could figure out – I can figure out a conventional frequency in a couple seconds, mm-hmm. you know, with a frequency counter or even one of the newer, you know, uh, scanners, you know, will instantly tell you. And I know Chicago had an issue with their um, VHF system a couple of years ago of some joker breaking into their, you know, the Chicago Fire Department radio system and talking on that and making a lot of racial slurs. And there was a problem on uh, – I believe it was Denver PD and they're on an EDAC system. You know, trunk system. And they had some joker break into that and start, you know, dispatching calls. You know, of course, the officers knew that they were bogus calls, but it took them a while to figure out who was doing it. And uh, Not to mention the fact that it's illegal well, to it do, was, but to get anybody yeah. prosecuted for it would be would probably and, take an act of uh, the well, federal government, right? Yeah, like, and, and they like were. The FCC. the FCC did, you know, step in and were able to figure out who did it and – you know, and there are some pretty smart guys, you know, running the Denver me, radio system. Let me interject there. Who's that? Where? Um, who was that? This is Ross here. Over oh, on hi. Side, on this uh, side of the studio. Um, He's breaking into our conversation. <laughs> oh, there I you. Am. Unauthorized transmission. That's I right. Think that's what I want Shut to Shut your radio up. off. Um, if you're not authorized to talk on a fire department frequency or channel, don't. Even as well as you might know, the fire firemen and the fire chief, that will not keep you from the city attorney or the legal department of that agency um very seldom if there's a fire they want to hear from you and the, yeah right well, and there are a lot of guys point. out there yeah. that program their radios and they program everything to transmit they yes. program all the fire departments please yes. why why you, you're not authorized to talk on it that you know and i'm authorized to talk on a lot of different departments frequencies mm-hmm. but you know what most of my radios are not programmed to do that or i have it with a switch disabled to transmit yes. because not that i'm going to act inappropriately on the radio i'm afraid to death of the accidental transmission of, of keying up, having an open mic on their channel and not knowing it. You yeah, know, that's you the last thing coffee, I want to happen. Stop for coffee and leave that radio sit on the counter. Oh, First man. thing somebody wants to do is grab and talk on it. I don't want the accidental transmission. Well, it's not even that, but I'm pretty sure everyone's heard the open mic from mm. the back of the cab and, oh, yeah. and the guys, you know, catcalling the uh, the girls. Oh, what? Oh, yeah. That doesn't happen. <laughs> never happens. No. Kenji, jump into kind of the future here. Where is the future of two-way communication going with radios? I mean, we're seeing digital trunked encrypted systems out there. And, uh, you know, when we were buying $150 portable radios, now we're buying $2,000 portable radios. Where is this all going? Well, $5,000 radios if you get all the fancy stuff from Motorola. Yeah, if, if you're, if you're the, the city yeah, and yeah. the county buying the radios. Yeah, but. and, you know, it's pretty amazing, you know, you know that Motorola can buy uh, – or sell 
ice to Eskimos. You know, they really can. They're very good at that. And so is Maycom. But radios, you know, the basic fundamentals of radios will stay the same. Just how we get them is going to, going to be different. Yeah, you push a button and talk. Yeah. But what happens between, you know, between then you know, and when somebody hears it is – Oh, boy. They're – you know, FCC mandates that everything has to be narrowband, you know, by 2012. That's right. Yet another wrench thrown in the works. Yeah. All those radios you have out there, if they won't do narrowband, you won't, they'll be useless, right? Uh, in theory, yeah, unless there's some systems that get waivers or um, even better, some systems that just ignore it. Now, of course, GMRS frequencies. Those are the general mobile radio service uh, frequencies. Which that, I think a lot of notification groups are yeah, using. Yeah, and, and uh, the MRA that, or MRS, that's what they use. Yeah. Um, I remember we had to have all have our own licenses. Yeah, and, and believe me, it's you don't have to take a test to have a GMRS license. I think it's like 80 bucks in the last five years and covers your whole household. And I think that's really a good viable option for a lot of people that, you know, want – a radio system or, you know, to be able to talk on a radio and you may want to go that route. But, you know, a lot of the uh, local radio providers, you know, Kenwood has, you know, NextEdge, which is a, uh, a their form of digital, you know, it could be conventional or trunked. Uh, ICOM has their form of digital. Uh, Motorola has their form of digital, you know, and these are all business, you know, allocated for business uses. So, Scanners won't be able to pick up this stuff, and uh, you're going to have to go out and buy new radios, you know, if you want to, you know, be able to talk on those type of systems. Right now, we're we're playing with a a digitally digital trunked encrypted system. We're just toying with some equipment out there and and uh, some equipment on a, on a, on loan basis. But really, you know, even though we're kind of propeller heads when it comes to radios, yeah. and and we we don't mind spending a lot of money on the equipment because of those. Those propellers, but uh, what is the benefit to something with all of that technology versus your your conventional system? Well, you know the system we're playing with is is an expensive system. It's a Motorola Type Two digital trunk system, which is a mouthful. And the encryption is really thrown in just for fun, right? Yeah. Tell me, tell the truth. <laughs> we are encrypted. We're, we're talking encrypted, so we, no one. It's else. so good, even we can't hear each yes, other. Yes, exactly. That's how good it is. And it's the encryption really isn't because we want to lock people out of listening to us, but it was just another layer of security so people wouldn't break in and try to hijack our system. And the reason why we're so paranoid about other people, you know, talking on our frequency. Is because we've had it happen to us so many times before, and it's just and really that was part of the genesis of ERS in the first place. Is we we all came from different directions, we all had different experiences with different notification groups, what worked, what didn't. So we tried to br- draw on those on those lessons and bring those all into into one group, and and then started ERS, and and that included. Um, the security of the radio, the the remote disability function or disabling functions and all that. Well, yeah, and, and that's what a big turnoff was for a lot of people with ERS was they couldn't program their own radios because only a few of us had the ability to program the radios, knew all the uh, the fleet maps and whatnot, and we tried keeping it a very closed system. But a lot of people don't like that idea, and, you know – Looking back on it, yeah, we were a bit hardcore about that, but it did keep the riffraff out. Mm-hmm. And 
unlike a conventional system where pretty much anybody can, well, anyone can talk on a conventional system if they have the, uh, you know, the the means to do so. And and really the same with uh, with an LTR trunk system. But with the system we're dealing with right now, if I hear you, then it's it's going to be very interesting. I'd really like to know how you figured it out because not only would you need to figure out all the frequency information, all the uh, digital, you know, ID information, but also the encryption is, is the key thing. And, yeah, we have the ability to kill radios over our system and uh, a lot a lot higher or a lot more sophisticated than anything we've ever had to deal with before. But that's something we're into. I mean, a notification, we're, we're a group starting heads. out there somewhere, it doesn't need to worry about this stuff. They no, can get no. by with a GMRS system and, you know, it, and do just fine, right? Yeah. And depending on their geography, uh, you know, repeater coverage, things like that might vary, but that's something they'll have to play with. And a lot of radio shops, a lot of vendors will let them, here, here's a couple of radios, yeah. go test the, the coverage out, test the system out, see how you like it. Well, there was a, there's one system out there or radio provider called Fisher Wireless, and they have a huge wireless networked, you know, LTR passport system that is networked throughout the state of California and goes into Arizona and Nevada. And in theory, you could key up your radio in Yuma, Arizona and talk to somebody in Las Vegas or in San Francisco. That would be a really big fire. It would be a huge fire. Huge. That'd be like, you know, the San Andreas Fault and all of California going into the ocean. Or like auto accessories. Oh, yeah. Oh, never mind. But uh, Legendary Los Angeles fire. Never yes, mind. Yes, yes. I digress. Went on for hours. So where is this going? Where? Well, what's the next step? The next step for... For two-way technology. What? What's the latest and greatest going to be soon? I, I think it's all going to, you know, as far as the uh, end user goes, it's going to be going... CB uh, radios. Pretty much. We know that. It's I, I all think gonna, gonna uh, be... tin cans and strings. Save your CBs. Don't, yes. no, don't put them on eBay yet. That's what we're all going to be yeah. talking about. I think, you know, regardless of whatever technology we're using, you know, the biggest problem with any system is getting the membership to participate. Oh, And huge. that's going to be the, the biggest hurdle anyone's going to have. Because everybody wants the information, but, and, you, but you've got to – Put it out there too. Yeah, and the problem is with no matter what technology you're using, is that with most of these systems cost, and trying to convince people to go up buy equipment in it, you know, to use on whatever system, or use their existing equipment but help pay for to offset the cost of the repeater. You know, so dues and things like yeah, that. Yeah, you know that gets really complicated and messy. You know, trying to collect on that, trying to you know, it, it's just, you know, any business owner. But, you know, a, but a system, no matter how good the technology is, only as good as the members that are on it, Exactly. Right? And no matter, you know, how many members you have on the system, you know, it only takes a couple of guys to really derail the whole thing. That's true. And, uh, and we've seen that happen before. MRS runs a really tight ship because they're so big and been doing it for so long. That if someone does, you know, fool around, they'll put a quash on that. Oh, really I, fast. I remember they'd have unauthorized transmissions on the radio, and there would be guys out there with the three antennas or four antennas oh, yeah. on their roof, and they would triangulate this person. Chase, there was one time I remember they were going down Route One or something. They chased this guy all the way into his driveway. He oh, yeah. bailed out of his car, ran into his house, peeked out the window, yeah, closed all the shades. 
I mean, and that was a huge intimidation factor is, is that, yeah, now guess what? We know who you are now. And, oh, yeah. and that was something. Oh yeah. And, uh, we've, we never did that here. I've never done that personally. I've never had to because, you know, generally on the old CFPA conventional system, we pretty much knew who was doing it. Yeah. It wasn't that big of a group. And, you know, it, and, and just, we still know who's doing it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, the ERS, as far as the ERS is concerned, you know, we do, you know, we've, we're going this direction where we're, we've always been kind of propeller heads and trying to go with something new. And we're hoping that by going the route, you know, that we're currently going, that this will probably be the last radio or set of radios you'll have to buy for quite a while. Cause you hope. Just, we hope the investment now is the equipment. It's not necessarily yeah. the dues or anything. Yeah. Cause with ERS, you know, we've pretty much given up trying to charge people for this. Yeah. Um, your buy-in is the equipment. If you can go out yeah. and afford an MTS five thousand portable XTS radio, 5,000 XTS, or MTS. Wow, where'd that come from? Oh, XTS or an XTL five thousand mobile. Yeah. I mean, if you can afford the equipment, come on, come on. Yeah, um, and as long as you're, you know, a guy that wants to participate, and that's the biggest problem with any group, you know, is the participation. And anybody that would want to spend that much money for radio equipment would hopefully be interested in participating. Oh yeah. But, um, but you know, I joked a minute ago about CB radios, and really, when you think about it, oh, yeah. there's a lot of geography, a lot of places in this country oh, yeah. where that might be the best way to communicate. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly nothing to be ignored. I mean, that's how I started talking to my buddies, you know, in, back in Massachusetts before I knew about MRS and all that is we were talking on CB radios. Oh, yeah. And really, I'm sure in pl plenty of places around this country, that's how they're communicating. Well, I tell you, GMRS is not a bad thing. You know, you don't have to take a test for the license. You just have to go online, fill out the application, which is very easy from the FCC. It does cost, like I said, I think it's like $85 now. That's good for five years. And there are a lot of GMRS repeaters out there. Or if not, if you really want to, you know, step up to the plate and, and become, a, you know, the, the guy for the system, you know, you can go to your local radio vendor and they may already have a GMRS repeater up that's not being used. Is that the best way you think for somebody to get started is to go to find a, a radio vendor? Or is, can they go to like the FCC's website and find out about some no, of the stuff? I, I would go to a local radio shop and just ask them. And, you know, if they laugh at you, well, there's usually another one in town. I think there's a couple of ways we might want to point people in a direction to find a radio vendor. For us, it's real when we say radio vendor, we're real common and know that. But... Uh, Start with the Yellow Pages or the Internet in your town. There's probably a movie production company or your city that they rent portable radios for different organizations. Yeah. Those guys are the ones that rent radios, and that's a good place to start. Well, even your local fire department, local volunteer fire department, generally is not buying their radios directly from Motorola. They're getting them from a local radio shop. Yeah, and when the department gets new radios, that radio shop now has a whole bunch of older Old radios, radios that yeah. they might be looking to unload. Exactly, and there's also the ham ham uh, radio ham, systems yes. out there. Yeah, and you know, I I just got my ham radio license, and I year. thought your propeller was getting dull. I know, I know. After all these years, I finally broke down and and uh, got my ham license. But uh, and that's well, who uh, are you? What's uh, your? I'm, I'm KI six PFD. There you go. I have a now vanity you know. call sign KI six PFD. Now you know. And if you ever call for that, uh, I'll probably won't be listening because I rarely <laughs> ever listen to ham radio stuff. Because nothing against hams, because majority of my friends are hams. But I spend most of my time listening to uh, public safety communications. Yeah. But when that system, when that all goes out in the big one, 
you'll, oh, yeah. have, you'll still have ham. I'll at least be able to get on some repeater someplace. But uh, Hams, a, Ham, CBs, and smoke signals. But I tell you, having a ham license really comes in handy because some states, like Florida, and I may be wrong, but if you're caught with a uh, scanner outside of your home or in, mounted in your car, uh, you can actually get cited in some states. Some uh, yeah, there are states out there where it's still illegal and, to have um, a scanner in your Unless car. you have or you know, a credentialed media person or carrying a fire department or a public safety ID card. But, you know, a ham radio license really, you know, can take you very, very far. And, you know, if you like to monitor, you know, communications. And along those lines, check with your local state laws and you know, yeah. governments about having scanners and, and radios in your car because mm-hmm. that's something you wouldn't be a surprise you'd want to uh, meet with. But, uh, geez, I, we've gone a little long today. Sorry. Uh, hope, hopefully. No, no, no. It's good stuff. That's, I mean, that's a huge part of uh, – of doing what we do is finding out about it, knowing about it, and talking to each other uh, at incidents. So I think it's an important topic and, and worth going a little long. Um, we hope it's been an interesting to everybody out there. I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up uh, as all the computers in here are overheating, and we might have a fire <laughs> of, our, of our own because it's now 84 degrees in the in the studio here. Oh, that's um, nothing. Hey, will you will you join us uh, on the next uh, next week? Uh, Kendra, I don't know. Um, it all depends on what the emails say. Uh oh. Yeah, that brings if, up if a good they point. want. Oh, that's to, right. Yeah, we want to. Well, how do people first? How do people contact you? How do they see your work? How do they uh, contact you? Uh, if boy, they want to? you know, I'm the worst at uh, updating my uh, web page. Yeah, which we all, is, we know. Yeah, I know. Uh, which is uh, <laughs> KenjiCam dot com. KenjiCam. Yeah, K E N J I C A M dot com. You can also see some funny pictures of me at work. Um, hanging off of helicopters. And you'll too. update that soon because everybody's going to be going to look there now, right? Uh, I hope so. Yeah. Can they get uh, email you through that or do you have an email yeah, address there's, you want to give Yeah, there's out? a link there. And, you know, photo at Kenji Cam, you know, will work okay. or Kenji at Kenji Cam. But, uh, yeah, if you have questions, you know, feel free to email me. May, may For take your two-way radio questions. Yeah. Or, and you, you are know, affil- affiliated with Foothill Communications now. Yes, yes. Um, Kenji has just uh, started his own company, Foothill Communications. You can have a website for that. He is really just getting going with it. Yeah, actually, if you go to foothillcommunications.com, it just says, come back soon. But at least I got the thing. But please do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Motorola, what, kind of, what kind of stuff are you going to uh, have available? Uh, right now, uh, Motorola accessories and, uh, and parts. And, okay. And... Um, Oh, and that's that that's huge! Yeah, you know, if you need a new, a knob for your s your old STX belt you know, clips and belt speaker clips mics and batteries, chargers, and yeah, all that kind everything of everything but the actual radio itself. For yeah. now, for now, um, great. It's just Motorola is a little finicky about you know having people buy you know sell radios. So, the, so that website again? Uh, it's foothillcommunications.com. Boy, that's a tough one. So check back, check that out, and you'll be updating that. You'll get something yeah, going eventually. Soon, so you you know, it's to... uh, it's you know along you know I work an average of you know, 60 to 80 hours a week on a film set. So it gets kind of tough, you know, with a family trying to update things, keep stuff current. But I'm going to try my best. Somebody's got to get their priorities in order. I know. It's terrible, isn't it? Anyway, so that's how you get a hold of Kenji. Ross, thanks again for being here. How How do people uh, see your work? Well, I'm uh, com, and I'm also Twitter at FirePictures. FirePictures at Twitter. Oh, you're right. I yeah. Turn that I know. Around. It's hot. It's the heat. <laughs> and uh, email address for you? Is Ross at firepictures.com. Firepictures, all one word. All one word. Well, that's a good one. How did you get? Oh, you got that one a while ago. You hung on to that one, haven't you? I've been doing this for a while. Yeah. (laughs) And if you want to reach me, I'm Craig at firegroundaction.com. And you can email uh, the podcast with any questions, your comments, your topic ideas. 
uh, your stories, anything like that. If you'd like to be on the show or if you want to send an MP3 file with your question, we'll go ahead and put it right on the show. Uh, that address is podcast at firegroundaction.com. And you can go to firegroundaction.com also for the show notes for the, all the all the websites we mentioned here on the show. So you don't have to write them down. We put them all in the show notes for you. You can find them there. And through the website, you can also subscribe to the podcast. You can just click play and listen to it if you like. And you can also find us on iTunes. We are uh, iTunes, so go really? to iTunes. Yeah. Wow. Big, big time, man. Time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but you have to search for us. We don't wow. show up on the front page or anything. <laughs> uh, but if you go to search for the, the podcast, just put in Fireground or put in my name, Craig Durling or Durling. But Fireground, the only thing, the first thing that will pop up um, is this podcast. So we are there. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, go to twitter.com slash firephotos. Sign up for your free account there. And we'll uh, we'll communicate there. Once in a while, we'll be putting questions out to all our followers on Twitter, and we'll be looking for feedback that way. But it's a good way for all, us all to kind of talk to each other, and you can put in show ideas and, and things like that um, on Twitter. So check that out. And uh, that wraps it up for this episode. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Stay safe out on those fire lines, and we'll see you next time on the Fireground Action Photography Podcast. Mm-hmm.